You know, I wrote in my book, Letters to a Young Artist, that it's really important to try to know what you've done because you can't believe what's written about you, whether it's good or bad. I don't read reviews. And so that means you need to know what you've done. To me, maybe maturity is, and I mean spiritual maturity, would be having a sense of what you've done. Some people would call that a conscience. We like to think of art as a secular religion. I don't know that it is. Sometimes I feel that having no conscience is okay. And it actually may go back to my religious upbringing, which was my grandmother, for example, frowned upon, danced. I know she frowned upon theater, as a matter of fact, that when she found out I wanted to be an actress, she wrote me a letter saying, I hear you want to be an actress. Please do not take off your clothes. Here's $5. Go buy yourself a new dress. Love, Grandma. <laughs> Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. Anna DeVere Smith is a much-honored artist who I am honored to call my friend. She has starred on screens both big and small in For the People, Nurse Jackie, The West Wing, and The American President. She graces our stages in solo shows such as Twilight, Fires in the Mirror, and Notes from the Field. These are distillations from interviews with hundreds of people on themes such as race or justice or healthcare, which she then lovingly stitches into a quilt of characters, all of whom she faithfully portrays. Her monologues are both intimate and epic. She's a Ken Burns hologram, an avatar of America, a one-woman national portrait gallery. Anna DeVere Smith, it's a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Scott, you're exaggerating. <laughs> uh, that, that, that would be impossible. Your current project, which starts previews on March 8th at the Mark Taper Forum here in Los Angeles, is a new production of your groundbreaking show, Twilight, which you wrote after the L.A. riots in 1992 following the Rodney King verdict. But this time, instead of you by yourself creating a stage full of characters, a stage full of actors will be doing it. What's it like for you to watch other actors perform roles you wrote for yourself and have played so often? The actors are representing... 43 people of the 320 people who I interviewed in the aftermath of the riot. And what is astonishing to me is how alive all of those voices are right now and how distinctly and powerfully and emotionally and even beautifully all of those people were. The language is extraordinary and you yourself are a connoisseur of language. And so that is amazing. And then of course, right now with the recent killing of Tyree Nichols, as one person at the theater put it, it just looks like my play will not become a historical drama. A powerful thing that happened in coming back to Los Angeles into the Mark Taper Forum where I performed the play 30 years ago, which is that there are archives of what we did. So for example, the young woman who drove me all around from Simi Valley to Nickerson Gardens to everywhere in this extraordinary geography of Los Angeles, who was right out of college at the time, still has the book 
of our daily, her daily diary of what we did that day and where we went and who we talked to. And along those lines, you know, somebody showed up with like two versions of the, like I did a different version of the script every day, but hauled out of some drawer, these old, you know, versions of the script. And so it did cause me to go back in and add some stuff that I'd since taken out of the Reginald Denny. And listeners will remember Reginald Denny as the man who was pulled out of his, uh, truck and beaten at what would be considered the epicenter of the riot and the beginning of it. And also Twilight, who was a gang member who I named the show after. So to look at these, these texts that over the years I've cut things from, I did have to go back and put them in their original state into the show. So as you're going back and looking at these documents, this evidence from a, another era, what's it like when you found some things that struck you and made you wanted to alter the script a bit. Did they seem like they had been produced by a different person? No, I, once I saw the language, I remembered it very, very clearly. I think the most shocking thing was seeing Keisha, who's the young lady who still had braces on her teeth. And we drove around was seeing her. She's now just as beautiful, but even more beautiful woman. And to have her come in there with that notebook full of all of everything we did. I mean, that just was, I can't tell you, that was amazing. It just brought this back the scale of what we were trying to do in a, in a fairly short amount of time. Um, I remember you telling me one time, because I, I think I asked you how this form came about, and you told me this story about someone giving you three questions. Yeah, that's right. I would like to hear that again, because I remember thinking just how life-changing that one person who I think you said you can't remember who, what the name of the person was or you haven't been in contact with them, and yet this person changed your life. Right. It was a random stranger that I met at a cocktail party, and um, she was a linguist, and when she asked me what I did, I was embarrassed to say I was an actor because then people say, what have I seen you in? And at that time in my career, nothing, really. And I said, well, I'm really interested in the relationship of language to identity, and I'm interested in ways that people, how to get people to speak in an idiosyncratic way that they and only they could speak. Um, and she's, I, I'm interested in, 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 in what happens when a person can't get through a sentence. And she said, I'm going to give you three questions to ask that will ensure that that will happen. And she knew that I was using interviews as kind of you know, I guess the way a photographer would have a sitting in a photographic studio, I was doing a similar thing with my tape recorder, you know, sitting and having people talk with me. And so the three questions were, have you ever come close to death? Have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? And do you know the circumstances of your birth? So the first show that I made was based on 20 real, real people and 20 actors. I would literally walk up to somebody in the streets of New York and say, hey, I know an actor who looks like you. If you give me an hour of your time, I'll invite you to see yourself perform. So I talked to the lifeguard at the 63rd Street. Why? We talked about swimming lanes and stickball of the street and Elgar, who was his favorite composer. I talked to Meredith Monk, speaking of composers, who you know, I couldn't believe back then um, she gave me an interview. And then somewhere in those interviews, I would ask those three questions. And lo and behold, the whole syntax of how they were speaking, all their, their vocal tones, their rhythms, their melodies would change like right then and there with those questions. And so those questions, which I never asked again in any of my other shows, 
taught me how to listen. I mean, I thought I was a listener. I was a listener as a child, but really taught me how to listen for what I now call architectural structures of speech, which when repeated will give the illusion that you are somebody else. You were brought up in the Baltimore area? That's right. And was there religion in your house growing up? And how was it presented? How did you take it in? My father uh, said he went to St. Mattress, so he did not join us in church. My mother became more religious as <laughs> we got older. Uh, however, my mother had been incredibly religious because she was raised part of the week by the minister of her mother's church. And so it, there was it, part of her life was like living in a church. Uh, and I think she was just a highly spiritual person anyway. But I also think that it isn't unusual, wasn't unusual in that day and age in Baltimore in a black community where, you know, part of your identity was the church you went to. I think that it was kind of like in the air and in the water. It was just a part of the way you lived, that church was an important part of it. From childhood to now, what's been the journey? I was raised as a Methodist. As an adult, I uh, became an Episcopalian. I even was artist in residence at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, which is a very beautiful church. I have a different relationship to it now. I think I carry my spiritual or my religious sensibility with me, and it isn't tied to going to church. Whereas when I was a girl, if you weren't in church, I mean, you just weren't religious, you know, put your money where your, where your mouth is. Every interaction you have when you're interviewing people, and I'm only basing this on, on the final result that I've seen, that you bring a sense of sacredness, that it, in a way, these people are giving you permission to capture their soul. It's like you're, you're a photographer and you're going to, and you're going to capture their soul if you take their portrait. And, and I feel like you take that very seriously. Am I correct? Well, I don't think I'm capturing souls. I mentioned I had been um, artist in residence at Grace Cathedral. The person who was dean there is now the head of one of the colleges at Oxford. And she said that she thinks some of my, the stories that I tell, uh, the stories that I gather are like parables. So uh, I think that's very interesting. And when I used to teach this kind of technique to students. I had one student who was in seminary and he said it was like prayer. The process is like prayer. And also when I was teaching it, uh, just like in a brief kind of masterclass to a group of students from Abu Dhabi, uh, they too, when I described it, said, well, it's like praying. So I think that, you know, it's a secular activity. It's not praying, but the fact that it respects words and it respects the repetition of words has something in common with many religious traditions, which is that the, the, an assumption that there's a power in the very words that you hear and a power in the very words that you say. And that that power brings you, is a part of, if anything, let's just call it your spiritualization. Many of the, the shows that you've done, you're doing a couple score of characters, but you're now doing something new, which you're doing you're focusing on one person for a full-length play, and it's someone not only who is very famous, but it's also someone who is living and can come to your rehearsals and give you notes. Um, and this is Billie Jean King. 
Right. So the play is about Billie Jean King, but there are other people in it who were in her life at a certain time, you know, the period of time in her life between 1963 and 1973. But she's an executive producer, so uh, she has say. <laughs> and, you know, the, the real people don't usually come to rehearsal when we're in rehearsal, but she's there. And, you know, it's kind of fantastic, actually, she and her wife. And also, you know, what, a, what an amazing person. She was just even in a Super Bowl ad I mean, she just keeps on going and her whole attitude towards, towards life is like, you know, what's next? And I've learned things from her. Like that was a hard time for her to become who she was. You know, she believes, for example, that you never take anything personally. And her other theory of life is we're not done yet. So that type of energetic, forward-looking person I find to be incredibly inspirational. The only time I met her was I worked as a producer on the uh, Bob Costas show on HBO, and we had her we had her on with John McEnroe. We interviewed the two of oh, them together. Oh wow! But that but that quality you're describing is she is in the right now this moment. But also the other thing I felt with her was that the unspooling of time has only vindicated her on everything. She was so far ahead, and the whole world she's. She's had to be patient as the world catches up to her. Well, uh, and dangerously so, you know. I mean, famously, a woman who she was involved with sued her uh, in the 80s, and it's hard for people to believe, uh, but it is the case, your younger audience members, that this woman sued her, outed her, and Billie Jean King lost every, she lost everything. She lost all of her sponsorships, right? And so I can't, Imagine that she felt very good about being forward-looking then. As it turns out, of course, she got the Medal of Freedom from President Obama. She and Muhammad Ali are the only two athletes included in a summary of the most influential people of the 20th century. You know, and they are both people who stood out front and took risks. But we also know it doesn't always work out that way for folks who take a risk. Well, I I can't wait to see that play. I'm going to see twilight here in LA at the at the taper and then I want to come down to La Jolla where you're going to be doing the that's going to be the premiere of the play is going to be at La Jolla yep at the La Jolla Playhouse it's I think June 8th I'm not I'm not sure something like that is the first performance bring your tennis racket and get on down to La Jolla I will do so I want to conclude with asking you two questions that I ask everybody when when there are in your life, when there are times of stress, has there been a single quote, scripture or secular, doesn't matter, that has helped get you through that time? Wonderful question. You know, I think that there's not a quote, but there is a prayer that I, I just ask to be the, the best that I can, right? I ask for that, to, to be the best that I can. In times of stress, I look also to music, no particular piece of music, but to music and quiet, or just what we did at the beginning of this time together, that minute meditation. I mean, I'm not an avid meditation individual, but I mean, I don't have a, a meditation dogma, although I, I did when I was younger and in acting school got me through. But I think forms of meditation. And I, I find that 
beautiful places and beautiful spaces are are very important. I think some churches are very beautiful. I evoked my friend Jane Shaw, who was the dean of Grace Cathedral when I was invited to be artist in residence there in San Francisco. And, and she now runs one of the colleges at Oxford. And, you know, she even talks about places where you can feel that people have been praying. And so that might be another thing that's attractive to me about such spaces. In America, it used to be that, for example, if I was on tour performing somewhere, my ritual would be that I would, you know, go swimming in the morning and then find a, a church that I would just get on my knees and concentrate and uh, or sit and concentrate. Now, a lot of churches are the doors are shut. However, when I was in London in 2018, it was it was just great that churches were open at least in the day, maybe 24 hours a day. And I think that that's a rare find in the United States now. Do you feel when you are praying, are you confident that your prayers are being heard and may be answered? I don't know if I think about it that way. I think that what prayer gives me is a greater feeling of belongingness and unity more than that I believe something will be answered. Yeah, I think that's what I would say about that. For me, I think that if nothing else, I'm clarifying my questions to the universe and that the universe is then the maximum ability for the universe to then uh, respond. If I'm really clear with myself or it clarifies me for an action I want to take. Yes. When your time on earth, uh, and may you be here for a long, long time to come, do you think there's going to be a reckoning for how you behaved during this lifetime? Boy, that's a powerful question. Wow. Uh, Maybe there are reckonings throughout if we are courageous enough to listen to them, I would say. You know, it's kind of like, wouldn't that be like the opposite of denial? Yeah. It's that I find as I get older that I, you know, I wrote in my book, Letters to a Young Artist, that it's really important to try to know what you've done because you can't believe what's written about you, whether it's good or bad. I don't read reviews. And so that means you need to know what you've done. That's in terms of performance, right? So I guess, to me, maybe maturity is, and I mean spiritual maturity, would be having a sense of what you've done. Some people would call that a conscience. But you mm-hmm. know, you and I work in a business that I, I know this will sound very pompous of me, but I, I, I feel sometimes that it, it's... It, we like to think of art as a secular religion. I don't know that it is. And sometimes I feel that having no conscience is okay. And I know, I, not for me, but I assume that this may be distorted. And it actually may go back to my religious upbringing, which was my grandmother, for example, frowned upon, danced. Uh, she frowned upon, I think she would probably frown upon, I know she frowned upon theater, as a matter of fact, that. When she found out I wanted to be an actress, she wrote me a letter and she was now becoming what we would now say, you know, a kind of Alzheimer's, kind of a scrawl of writing saying, 
I hear you want to be an actress. Please do not take off your clothes. Here's five dollars. <laughs> Here's five dollars. Go buy yourself a new dress. Love, Grandma. <laughs> and I was living. I was living in the home of someone who was her niece, but they grew up like sisters, as those kind of old families were. And she had been a dancer, and she had gone to New York to be a dancer, and she passed. She consciously passed as other than black. She passed as Spanish and she was capped and all this stuff. She's very beautiful. And so my grandmother loved her, but I think she was very ambivalent about that. And so this, this, I think I did have a kind of inherent ambivalence about is what I'm doing in that old sense, sinful. Right. And I do think that, you know, the ty- there are things about our business that are, you know, are kind of like the seven deadly sins, honestly. And so I never completely trust our business as a place where people will be honorable. I certainly don't expect them to be honest. And I think it's caused for me perhaps a bit of um, fear. I have no trust in the people who have power, almost none. And I expect them to be dishonest and I expect them not to be honorable. That's a really terrible thing to say, but I think there's ways that in our business, people excuse things that are a lack of conscience. But the same is true with academia. I don't know if any business is different. I shouldn't blame it on our business. I mean, I think corporate America, you know, I, I think it can be heartlessly. We know it can be heartless. Oh, I've worked with people for whom uh, deception is a source of pride. The, the ability to deceive people is seen as a source of pride. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the seven deadly sins, because what I think is the business of what we do is a temptation that works against our being as pure as we might like to be in our art. Well, I think people would laugh out loud to hear us talking about purity. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, I think that's true. Um, well, let me, let me end with this. Let's say Tomorrow, you wake up and you're in a palace and um, there's a balcony. We're on the second floor, third floor. There's a balcony. Outside, there are going to be, there's going to be a crowd of people. And you have been elected or you are benevolent dictator for the planet for a day. And you have one ceremonial duty to perform that's been agreed upon by everybody in the world. First time the entire world is, is acting in acclamation. And you are the global curator, and you're going to tell them one work of art. It could be a painting you want them to see. It could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be a play. It could be a a song that you want them to hear because you think it has profound influence on the listener. And so you're going out to the balcony, and what would you be telling the gathered throng? Well, I think that I would take them to a natural work of art, actually. Uh, when you ask that, what comes to mind is Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, which is this. It is really astonishingly beautiful and certain parts of it in, in this canyon that is just, it's what, it's what, it is one of the seven wonders of the world. And the other thing that's so beautiful about going down uh, the falls at Victoria Falls is that you are going to fall out of the raft. It's not that you might 
fall out of the raft, but you're going to fall out of the raft. And so, you know, you probably shouldn't go down if you're too afraid of falling out. But the fact is that you're also going to find your way back to the raft and that there's nothing to be afraid of in a way when you fall out because it's so beautiful. And then, you know, if you went on a good tour (laughs) with a good tour guide, they'll pull you back into the boat. But they tell you before you go down, you're going to fall out. You have a life vest on and all that. But just sort of being in that beauty, it's almost like you're hearing in the silence a kind of music. And so I would say that maybe what I would wish for in works of art, I have experienced it, is where you feel the expanse of an artist's imagination and you also are aware of risks having been taken. And that is a wonderful answer to this question. It is always a delight to talk to you. I come away always feeling like I have been received not only the the warmth of friendship, but also there is a sense of inspiration and there is a sense of education. And I once again am indebted to you. Thank you for your support and belief in my work. I end each show with a semi-sermonette I call In My Homily Opinion. If it sparks a response in you, email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com and we can start a dialogue. Well, it's Oscar season and there's been some red carpet love for Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, but seeing it reminded me of the scene in his 1977 sci-fi epic Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's the scene where a manic Richard Dreyfus sculpts the mashed potatoes on his dinner plate into a miniature mountain. And when he sees his family staring at him, he begins to sob and he says, What I guess you've noticed is that there's something a little strange with Dad. It's okay, though. I'm still Dad. I can't describe it what I'm feeling, what I think. This means something. This is important. The Dreyfus character is like any visionary, compelled to express feelings he can't describe, even if it means eye rolls at the dinner table from his wife and kids. Young Sammy Fableman, the Spielberg avatar, shows an early talent for making movies, but his engineer dad can't conceive that something so fun could ever be more than just a hobby. Well, everybody with a new idea lives in a world that's gotten along without that idea for a very long time. And the more radical the idea, the greater the risk that the artist might be a crackpot. In Close Encounters, there does turn out to be a mountain that's a giant version of the pile of mashed potatoes, and on that mountain, an alien spaceship does appear. Well, in my career, I've known many people who heeded those inner voices and took the plunge and emerged triumphant, but many more who took the leap and landed on their face. The world never punched their ticket, and poor and bitter they became cautionary tales to their families and friends. And so I ask you, have you ever had a Rubicon moment? What did you do? Play it safe? Take a shot? Did the shot hit? 
Or did it miss and did you give up? Do you now regret giving up? Is failing worse than not trying? Let me know what you think. Email me at yegodspodcast at gmail.com and follow us on social media at yegodspodcast. Thank you for listening.